Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein A Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein A Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to the first episode of Einstein and Go-Go for 2023. I'm Dr. Shane. I can't believe I just said that number, actually. It's a bit disturbing that we've reached that. Still feels like 986 to me. Good morning, Chris KP. G'day, man. How are you? I, I see it as an achievement. <laughs> Another year got there, just hung in there quietly, unassuming, and there it is. Yeah, year. yeah. Well, we missed a few years. That's why I <laughs> quote my age as three left than, less than it actually is, but... <laughs> That's the way it goes. Uh, we've got Lauren on the line. Good morning, Lauren. Good morning, Dr. Shane. How are you? Good. Coming live from your closet, as usual. Exactly. Exactly. We're going to get I'm you out. Stra- I'm a little stranded this week. A little stranded this weekend, Dr. Shane. I'm, I'm down a car and there's no trains running from Gippsland. So, yeah. Yeah. joining from the cupboard. Uh, we'll get you out of the closet at some stage <laughs> sooner or later. <laughs> Anyway, we've got a huge show for you today, folks. It's the first one back for, for the year, and uh, we're going to start off with some some health stuff. Then after that, we'll be travelling to Antarctica, not literally, but uh, with someone who just did, and really then we're going to end up talking about the environment and some of the things we need to do. So it's a, it's a huge show. But uh, welcome back to the studio, Dr. Sandro DeMeo, the CEO of Vic Health. Good to see you, buddy. It's, uh, well, it's been a few months. It has. Yeah, good to see you again. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. Now, I've noticed that you have been in the media a bit lately mm. um, and I think we discussed this briefly the last time you were on but it's this the issue of vaping which seems to be just exploding at the moment. There is a government um, discussion going on at the moment. Give us the details of where that's at and what, what the goals are of that. Yeah, so we've seen an explosion of e-cigarette use uh, across Australia just in the last few years doubled among teenagers uh, pre-pandemic to now. Um, and you know we know that um, you know these are these are products that contain hundreds of chemicals. We breathe them deep into our lungs. The long-term health effects are not known, yep. um, but you know they are associated with all sorts of short-term health risks. Um, and particularly for young people, you know we're very concerned. I'm very concerned that without further action from governments, we're going to end up with an entirely new generation addicted to nicotine potentially lifelong. Mm. Um, So the federal government announced a consultation, a process of sort of listening to stakeholders, communities, leaders, experts. Um, That happened towards the end of last year. Minister Butler announced that um, and that closed last week. Right. Um, And, you know, I think it's an opportunity for government to take stock through the TGA, the Therapeutic Goods Administration, um, and hopefully a step up and take some action to protect particularly our young people um, and enforce, you know, the safeguards, some of the safeguards that are already in place, but also some safeguards mm. that are clearly missing uh, when we look at the scale of the challenge uh, and the threat that it poses yeah. to young Australians. So it's interesting to me. I mean, I, I should declare a bias here, of course, because I have a teenager and I have another one who's about to be a teenager. So, like, when I hear some of these numbers, uh, it scares the bejesus out of me mm. because I think, um, you know, I'm in a family where, you know, I've seen a death due to emphysema. Mm. I've seen a death due to heart disease in my history. In fact, I look at old pictures of my grandparents and my, my grandfather on my father's side is always holding a cigarette. In the photographs, and I think, wow. gee, you know, it's it's interesting to have grown up in that and not ended up a, a smoker 
yeah, myself. But obviously there is an element of, and I, I know this term gets misused a lot, but harm minimization with regards to s- existing smokers who are trying to quit smoking. So, I mean, presumably we have to have a system where those those individuals have appropriate access, as as would be the case, I suspect, for other medicinal substances, for diabetes and everything else. Is that is that in the in the works? Yeah. So, first of all, um, you know, I'm sorry to hear that about your family member, and I think it is important to remember that you know smoking is the only product that, if used exactly as intended by its by the companies that sell it, mm. will kill two and three of their long term users. Yep. Um, we allowed them to be everywhere in society. Um, the industry covered up all of the evidence for decades around how harmful they were. Uh, and it's now 70 years from the Surgeon General's report in the US where it mm. clearly said, you know, tobacco causes cancer. Uh, and we're still having to, you know, slowly and carefully clean up that yep. in- enormous challenge that um, mm. smoking poses. So we certainly don't want more smokers Um but the problem is that, you know, we, we simply don't know the long-term health effects of e-cigarettes. Um, and these products have a sticky residue. You breathe them deep into your lungs. It contains hundreds of chemicals. And some of the major investors and backers of these products are, guess who, the tobacco industry mm. that sees, uh, you know, that sees a product, their, their kind of first business, um, mm. fast going out of business uh, yep. in Australia as it should. So... Um, you know, I think we, we do need to make sure, and it is in the current legislation, so the the program or the approach we have in Australia is that if you go to a doctor and you currently smoke, mm-hmm. um, the first and most effective and best kind of evidence-based ways to quit, and I should say also, first of all, 95% of people will quit smoking without any extra assistance. Yeah, right. we, we fund the quit line here in Victoria. Yep. Most people will quit without any extra help. It might take a few times, but that's why we provide the quit line. We provide resources, we provide information, and we provide counselling. If you can't do that, then there are patches and chewing gum, evidence-based, low risk. Mm -hmm. And if you can't do that, if if that doesn't work, then e-cigarettes are available with a prescription through your doctor. But they don't don't carry zero risk, these products. They are actually uh, products that, you know, long-term health consequences, we're not... We, we don't understand we don't yeah. the evidence around their, their, their help in terms of tobacco cessation is still fairly poor. Uh, and so doctors are right, rightfully, so, rightfully so cautious, um, making sure that these are a second or third line tool for helping mm. people to get off smoking. But they, no, one, no one is saying that they shouldn't be available to people right. as a tobacco cessation tool. That's not really the conversation that's already in place in Australia just like any other pathway through your doctor with a prescription and a conversation with a qualified uh, GP or clinician. Mm. The challenge is that we've got hundreds of thousands of young people now using these products. The market has been purposefully swamped, flooded with cheap imports. Um, They contain nicotine but just simply don't put it on the packet. Flavours like Fruit Loops and Milk or Strawberry Mm. Kisses, it looks Mm. like a makeup packet. Um, and, uh, you know, for about five bucks, you can get as much nicotine as 50 cigarettes. Right. Uh, and, and they're everywhere. And, and I think we need to make sure that we take swift action to protect young people while absolutely still allowing people who... There's a very small number of Australians who uh, will use these products to get off smoking to yeah. do that safely and carefully through their GPs. Now, if we, if we do restrict um, access, because I assume at the moment you can just buy them anywhere, right? I mean, well, they're illegal to buy with nicotine, right. um, but but they just sell not, them without. The it's labeling. not being enforced. Yeah. Right. <clears throat> so if you if you take them out of the shops, you take them out of the retail setting. 
So they're only available through the through the essentially through the PBS system and you know through your doctor. Yep. Um, is there an expectation we'll get this avalanche of illegal products coming in, or is that is that not? Well, the avalanche is already here because that's that that's you know industry has done what they always do, which is to try and try and kind of use a backdoor to force mm. uh, government you know, to allow these products, which make, which are now a $2 billion market in right. Australia. So a lot of money to be made here yep. by tobacco industry. Yep. Um, they flooded the market while we were all distracted and trying to, you know, handle a, a global pandemic, uh, preyed on young people, pushed them, you know, incredibly uh, aggressively through their social media, using young people, weaponizing young people's own data mm. to get them to, you know, take notice of these products, try them and become yeah. addicted to them. Um, and I think the argument that, you know, they, they want us to think, the industry wants us to think that the horse is bolted, that it's too late, but it, of course it's not. Yeah. Uh, these products have only been really common for a couple of years. Uh, young people are smart uh, I think that if we put things in place to reduce uh, reduce the imports or stop imports, illegal imports, stop illegal sales, but make them available uh, to those that need to quit smoking and then deliver mm. high-quality public health messaging to young yep. people uh, to, you know, using the same sorts of approaches that we've been able to yeah. use with tobacco. I, I think the argument that it's too hard... Or well, the argument that we don't know. These are, these I mean, are this weak, is the health of really young people. Yeah. Arguments I mean, how ridiculous. Like we're not, we're not going to say, yeah. oh, it's too hard to, to do something about protecting hundreds yeah. of thousands of young people from being an entirely new generation addicted to nicotine. Yeah. That kind of makes my blood boil because yeah. if, if we throw up our hands on that, you know, I mean, mm. we've got government, we've got the medical community. And to be honest, I get contacted from hundreds of parents, teachers, community leaders. People, people want government to step up yeah. and, and take action it's an interesting one to me i had a bit of a you know deja vu moment the other day when i announced that you you were coming on to talk about this because it reminded me that the response i got was twofold there were some health people who said good this this is a real big problem and, and we're seeing statements out of the ama and the rscgp and others who you know are at the front line of health mm. and then i started getting contacted by some of the retail associations mm. about how evil you are <laughs> for doing this. And I thought this, this, the deja vu moment for me was when years ago I sat on the panel with Adam Bant and the director of the film Gasland about mm. fracking. Mm. And I remember the amount of material that was sent to me from some of the petrochemical firms and how beautifully communicated it was to be mm. fair to them. And I thought, wow, those who are going to lose the most money here have got a lot at stake. And I don't hear them talking about health. I hear them using the same phrases. It's too hard. It's too late. You know, it's we don't know. These these things, there's no evidence that it's problematic. Well, you know what? There was no evidence that asbestos was problematic for decades. And in fact, the stuff that scares me the most is the stuff where we're talking about hundreds of chemicals and we don't know. That actually really bothers me. Mm. I think, you know, any scenario where there is some unknowns, I'd prefer on, err on the side of caution until I have some idea. Mm. And the our lungs are just, I mean, we see the impact of respiratory distress in countries with poor air quality. Mm. That's before you start doing this. Mm. That should be a clue that, you know, putting foreign substances into our lungs deliberately is a bad move. But um, when will we find out from government what they're going to do? I don't know. Is that the <laughs> big <laughs> that's question? The really, it's the, yeah. it's the, that's the big question. I mean, I think, you know, um, 
I, be- I believe I think we're, we're the, the Australian government will do the right thing and will um, step up. We, we've we've been a global leader in tobacco control, mm. uh, you know, and this is an opportunity for us to be back as a world leader yeah. once again. I think we're the, behind New Zealand though, now, aren't we? Well. Maybe. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, that's another conversation yeah, yeah. for another day. But <laughs> yeah, I mean, no, and, and look, yeah. I think it's great that also the measures that we took in terms of plain packaging mm. and other things have inspired other countries and, and given coverage because let's not yep. forget that these companies, tobacco companies, also sued Australia and yep. sued smaller countries when they tried to implement measures to protect their populations from cigarettes. Yeah. If, you they're, know, if they're not harmful and there's no concern, why would you sue them? Why, why sue if it's not a worry? Well, and if it's not making a huge amount of money yeah. from a product that we know kills two in three of their regular yeah. long-term users. So the track, the track record is not particularly mm. rosy for them. And, I mean, they, you know, they are starting to push very hard uh, yeah. against the public health community. But I think that just shows, you know, what's the, the, the amount of money that is at stake. But yeah. for me, what, what gets me up and what keeps me, you know, coming here on a Sunday morning is the fact that, it's not money at stake, it's the health of children, yeah. it's the health of young people. We can't look back in three, five, ten years and think if only we'd taken action, we wouldn't now have an entirely new generation of Australians addicted to tobacco. We have done so well yeah. in, you know, in stopping the scourge that is cigarettes over the last 50 years. Mm. That's a scourge that was brought by an industry. I don't yeah. blame at all individuals or smokers, um, you know, we need to make sure that doesn't happen again, and yeah. let's not look back and wish. Let's let's take the action now and protect young Australians. Yep. Well, let's hope there's some good, solid legislation coming out of government. Sandro, thanks for the tireless efforts you put into this. And as I say, I am biased because I have a teenager and about to have another another one into that range as well. And I don't want to see them addicted to nicotine any more than I think most other parents don't as well. So, thank you. Good luck, and no doubt we'll talk about this at some stage in the future. Thank you. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. On the line with us now is Georgia Watson. Georgia is the research officer, part of the Securing Antarctica's Environmental Future up at the University of Wollongong. Good morning, Georgia. Good morning, Shane. It's great to talk to you. Now, we bumped into each other a little while back on Twitter because you were posting all these inappropriate pictures out of the window of a 787 of Antarctica which, you know, I just don't like seeing that stuff because I don't get to you go. You love seeing that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> now, let's, let's go back a little bit. Um, you, you were down in Antarctica not that long ago, right, doing some, some research. Tell us about that. Yeah, so I got to go to Casey Station in February of 2022. Um, I was collecting moss samples for securing Antarctica's environmental future, which we call SAFE. Um, my boss... Sharon Robinson has been going down to KC for about 20 years. Mm. So we're collecting long-term data of the moss beds in Antarctica and we're seeing how the moss beds change over time, looking at the species composition of the moss beds and the overall health of the moss beds. So I got to collect those samples and now I'm back in the lab this year looking at those samples to figure out which species we found where. So it's, it's wild stuff because I think I, I have these images, and correct me if I'm wrong here, that these moss beds, like, they go over kilometres, right? I mean, they are enormous, yeah, big ecosystems. Yeah, so in East Antarctica, they're pretty big. They're not quite kilometres. You might see that, um, like, hundreds of square metres on the peninsula. Mm. In East Antarctica, you would see sort of, tens of metres of moss beds. Right. So pretty substantial area when you consider that 
the moss in Australia you might find between the cracks in your pavement. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And like I, I was so that I was talking to someone I think about a year and a half ago, and they said, imagine like when you think of Antarctica and what's going on there. So sort of, imagine the Amazon sort of squashed down into a couple of inches. Is hmm. that? I mean, is that what you saw, like just this incredibly complex series of life forms and so forth, but in a very sort of narrow vertical range? Yeah, like a like a little micro forest. So mm-hmm. we do call it the Dane tree of East Antarctica. We have such um, complex ecosystems, like you said, there will be tardigrades, there'd be microbes, um, there's a huge diversity of life and fungi and algae down there as well. And a lot of that uh, relies on the ice-free areas in Antarctica and the moss beds that we're seeing are actually growing on ancient penguin colonies because obviously as long as as well as needing water you need nutrients so that mm. penguin poo is feeding the moss beds and so this very complicated ecosystem that's been growing there for a very long time yeah interesting now when you went down uh, to Casey did you go by boat or did you you go by plane or I I'm one of the very fortunate people got to go on a plane. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I've heard that because there's that region of the ocean, I can't remember what it's called, for about two days you have to cross. It's very, very choppy. Yeah, it's, it's like the roaring 40s and the, yeah. the screaming 50s yeah. or 60s, something like that. <laughs> yeah, my, it's yeah, pretty hurling rough. 40s. Yeah, in my case, it'd be the hurling 50s. Uh, but yeah. I, I hear that, you know, like it's two two hours flight or two days to cross that region of the ocean just that region not the whole lot so yeah so we actually had um soon to be dr crystal randall who you spoke to last year from um, securing antarctica's environmental future she actually caught the boat down last month Right. And so I think it was about 10 days trip and she wasn't very well for it. I, <laughs> I, just, I mean, I'm pretty good on boats. You know, I can I can go fishing out in the bay and stuff and, you know, I kind of cap out at about five hours. So I think mm. <laughs> small boat, you know, fair, fair crack, you know, small boat. But still, yeah, I, I, I think after a while I'd be feeling a bit bit queasy. The plane, the plane was lovely. It's a very nice flight. I, I went because um, I was in hotel quarantine before going. I was 15 days in a hotel yeah. in Hobart. Then we left at midnight, and so we arrived at Casey in the morning, and it was it was a treat. Oh, nice. So I wanted to ask you about that. It's, it's interesting to hear that, that quarantine is so strict because obviously, you know, medical capabilities down at Casey are, are limited. You know, I always have this image of, you know, a sort of a, an offshoot program from MASH, you know, where, where there's even fewer doctors. Um, but I know that's, you know, that's a, that can be a real issue down there. So you had two weeks where you were essentially separated from everyone? Yep, we had um, everyone got individual hotel rooms for two weeks. It ended up being 15 days because we had um, a weather delay, which can happen with Antarctica. Mm. So we stayed an extra day. Um, But it was really great. The polar medicine team were brilliant. We had three PCR tests while we were in the um, hotel quarantine and then more PCRs once we got to Antarctica. And then after three days, we were able to integrate into the Casey community who were just wonderful people. Yeah, probably the second safest place on Earth, I suspect. Uh, well, on Earth, the safest place probably being the International Space Station. Yeah, yeah. That's mm. where I'd want to be. Um, now, tell us, I mean, I know, I'm sure everyone sort of asked you, you know, what it was like down there, but I mean, what I'd love to know is what, what did you feel when you got there? I mean, you've been working in this space, you're obviously working with people on these topics. I mean, how did you feel when you kind of got off the plane? Getting off the plane, it was such an indescribable experience i'm not someone who typically goes to the snow in australia or anywhere else in the world really so stepping off onto an ice sheet where just under a few centimeters of snow there's blue ice and that's like a four or five kilometer thick ice sheet it was freezing but 
everyone was so excited. The energy was palpable. Like everyone was excited to be there. I was absolutely stoked. It's yeah, it was my first time. I'm hoping I can swindle a few more trips in my <laughs> career. But yeah, I, I definitely fell in love with it straight away. Yeah, I guess Beautiful. it's a, probably one of those environments that's so so separated from anything else that you'd be used to seeing. It, it looks quite, um, it would be phenomenal. I've, I've, you know, the pictures look phenomenal. And the one thing I, you know, I do a lot of amateur astronomy sort of stuff and I always tell people, as good as the camera is, your eye is better. Always. Your eye is always going to be better. And so I can imagine it's just stunning. Now, more recently, of course, you've been doing some of these Antarctic flyover flights on the, I think it's a Qantas, uh, is it a 787? Yeah, Dreamliner. Yeah, yeah, the Dreamliner. And I mean, what, what's the scenario there? Is it, are you, are you flying? I have this image of, you know, you're flying for three minutes over Antarctica and then you come back. How, how long do you get? Like, what's the, tell us what it's like. Yeah, so I got to go um, on an Antarctic overflight on New Year's Eve, actually. With um, I was an ambassador for the Antarctic Science Foundation, who do brilliant work mm. supporting Antarctic research. Um, and so being an ambassador, I got to be on the plane for 14 hours, but four of those hours were flying over Antarctica. Wow, four, four hours. That, they'd get a bit of coverage yeah. there. Yeah, that's... Yeah, so we had really great weather as well, really great visibility. We got to fly over um, Cape Adair, we got to fly over Terranova Bay, the Transantarctic Mountains. We saw a couple of glaciers. Wow. It was really, really awesome. How low do you go? That's, that's the question, isn't it, Chris? How low do you go? Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm not too sure. We were pretty close to the mountain ranges and the, and the glaciers. We got really – I'm sure you've seen some of the pictures on Twitter. Yeah. We got pretty close. It was – really breathtaking i'm someone who my emotions are quite close to the top so i shed a little tear seeing how beautiful the mountains were and a lot of the passengers were like oh you're crying are you okay i was like yeah i'm having the best time ever (laughs) that's so good and i mean look i've been on some tours i think uh universal studios a few others where you know there's a tour guide what did you have to do to be a tour guide for four hours while flying over Antarctica? And on the right, you'll see some more ice. I mean, what, <laughs> like, what was that? You know, how did you, how'd you go about that? Yeah. So we actually had um, on the flight as well some Antarctic experts, so um, people who were doing the tour guiding and explaining on the left you'll see Mount Minto, on the right you'll see Cape Adair, that sort of thing. And those are people who have been doing trips, they've been to Antarctica several times one of them i think had been over 20 times wow and so my role on the plane was to walk up and down and talk to passengers about any questions they had that had come up because of what they'd hear on the tour um talking about research talking about antarctica talking about conservation climate change all of those sorts of things because the people who go on on a trip like this are really passionate and are really excited and want to learn more about antarctica so that was such a privilege to be able to share what I really love about Antarctica yeah. with those people as well. And, and you gave you, – you were kind of like the, the person who does the scoring of a film. You gave the emotional potency <laughs> that everyone else didn't like walking up and down the aisle crying. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's great. It, it was a, a very strange experience because whilst I've been to Antarctica and been on the ground, you do get that emotion and you get that rush of energy from the mm. people around you. With flying over, I think it can be a little bit disconnected. But for a lot of people, it might be the closest they'll ever get to Antarctica. And I think that's such an important experience for people to get to know nature and the really beautiful parts of our planet that need protecting. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a a good way to describe it. And I think the more people we could get down there, 
you know, the better. I mean, if, if I was a school principal, I'd be, you know, can we get the kids, kids on one of these flights? Because, you know, imagine that. That would just be, be so formative. Now, Georgia, before you go, I just wanted to talk to you a little bit about your career because you haven't done a PhD, am I correct? Correct. So you've done an undergraduate uh, honours degree in science? Yes, that's right. Yeah, so, I have a bachelor's and honours. And so I think this is a really good example for people that you can have an exceptionally vibrant career. I mean, going to Antarctica is no small thing without having done a PhD, which is often, you know, projected as the, you know, do it or else. And mm. that, I mean, what what are your reactions to that? Because, I mean, I, I think most people, when they hear you talking about what you've done, what you're doing and so forth, just assume that you've gone down that normal path. Yeah, um, I think that's probably true. A lot of people I meet do um, think that I've done a PhD and I have such high respect for all my peers who have done PhDs, Anna, and are in the midst of their thesis at the moment. Um, I, yeah, I managed to, after my honours, get a job as a research assistant. So um, I've done a couple of different gigs. I've been out to the deserts in outback New South Wales. I've been over to Indonesia measuring rainforest trees. I've had really great opportunities, but that is true that um, being professional staff at a university, you can have a really incredible career and be not only supporting so many different projects, which give you um, a, such a diversity of experiences, but professional staff do really provide a lot of valuable work for universities and research teams, um, as do PhD students, of course. But yeah, there's still a lot you can do without having to go down that route yeah no it's great it's a great story to hear that you've done so well with all that i will say georgia if uh, you're heading back to antarctica and your bags are too heavy to to carry and you need some help i am available um always, always available for those trips i think uh, chris kp would probably be available too. i don't know my back's not going to carry bags. <laughs> your, your well, back's not you know, gonna i just take some napkin and but suck if you carry it up the bags i can go as moral support I'm, oh you could go as I'm, moral support i'm very enthusiastic well especially if there's a lot of crying <laughs> Like, because you're good with hugs. Actually, Chris is good with hugs. There you go. There it is. Wonderful. <laughs> Georgia, it's been great talking to you. Thank you so much for giving up your time today. Keep sharing those amazing photos on Twitter. They are spectacular. And uh, I think uh, the one thing I notice whenever I, I see them and, you know, some of your other colleagues who've done similar um, flights and so forth over the last year we've spoken to as well, they look like, you know, I, I suspect you I'm not sure if you just did them with your phone, but they they look like professional photos because the landscape is so extraordinary. And yet, I think they're it's, just phone photos. It's hard right? to take a bad, hard to take a bad mm. photo in Antarctica. Yeah, it's extraordinary stuff. Georgia Watson uh, from the University of Wollongong. Thanks so much for being a guest today. Thank you, Shane. Pleasure to be here. Triple R on FM, digital, online, and via the app. Uh, welcome back, folks. You are listening to Einstein and Go-Go on 3 R. I'm Dr. Shane. Chris KP's in the studio with me. Dr. Lauren is, I don't know, somewhere out in Warrigal online as well. And also in the studio is our third guest for today, Gail Hall, who is the co-founder of the Australian Green Infrastructure Network. Welcome to Triple R, Gail. Hello, Dr. Shane. Hello, everyone. It's great to have you in here. Now, I bumped into a colleague of yours on Twitter, as I often do um, on the show these these days. Get a lot of guests from Twitter, actually. When I heard that it might go away, I freaked out. I thought, where am I going to get all my guests? Uh, I might have to go back to the old days of press releases. Still get those. Um, but you're, you're doing some interesting stuff. And I think this came about because I posted some images of the airport in Singapore, where there, there is yes. incredible internal forest and waterfall. And for people who haven't been there, I mean, you walk into that centre and it's like going into a botanical garden. I think it's, have, have you been there? Yeah, I love that place. Uh, I'm originally from the UK, so right. it is my 
favoured airport on the stop on the yeah. way back to the UK. Yeah, it's just I love rejuvenating. It. I, I always choose a little bit of a longer layover so I get a chance <laughs> to see what they've done. And I was very annoyed last time that I couldn't get to the new waterfall um, section that they, oh, they've the big, created yeah. because of COVID restrictions. Yeah, right, right. Um, it's extraordinary. We've got a butterfly house there. I, mm. I like it's it's all it's all happening. You, you, it's like you, you you go to you know different parts, and I think there's a the, there's a cactus plantation on the roof or something that didn't thrill uh, me. And, and again, that, that was closed due to COVID <laughs> oh, right. last time I was there. Um, but they've rejuvenated that, so I'm really excited. Yeah, to Yeah, I think it. that'd be cool. Uh, I mean, I was there. I walked out there and go. Damn, it's hot. It walked yeah. straight back inside the airport and went for the rainforest. So, um, but but it was it's an interesting example of just how much green space can be cr- created inside what traditionally an awful environment. I mean, airports really mm. they suck. I yeah. hate airports. Um, but that place is something else, isn't it? Absolutely, and and if you think about the fact that I'm saying this is one of you know my my favoured airport, right? People either um, consciously or unconsciously choose to go to places that make them feel better Mm. Um, and greenery i think has a real um way of doing that for people whether as i say consciously or unconsciously and and that's what i always feel better when i'm in that that airport whether it's the air quality or just the visual relief that you get from you know you don't see many plants on planes so (laughs) (laughs) absolutely yeah nothing nothing good on planes um so when we when we look at a city like melbourne and, you know, we've got a few parks around. Yeah, it's nice. But but there's a lot of concrete walls and a lot of concrete spaces and a lot of a lot of glass, which I know is problems for, for bats and, and certain birds and so forth as well. I mean, where, where, are we, where do we stand in the scheme internationally of sort of greening spaces? Melbourne, um, we're lucky with our, the four founders of Melbourne, um, the colonial four founders, obviously, mm. um, that, that there was uh, some good planning around the green spaces that we had and we used to be called the the um it's called the green necklace around the city um and you have multiple parks that that try to form that necklace Mm. around the city and the theory was that you would be able to find respite within a reasonable distance of the city center um these are obviously at ground level we've actually had very few new open spaces developed in in melbourne and they're certainly trying to change that and they've got a couple of new spaces that have opened recently but predominantly we're losing um open space in the private realm so there might be some some areas that developers have decided to knock down um, a Mm. building that may have had an outdoor area and uh, build something boundary to boundary and it it tends to uh, reduce the amount of open space as a whole across the city and we're definitely seeing that dramatically in the city itself and the surrounding suburbs. I I was in the building in the city uh, just before Christmas and I went in there and when I first walked in I thought oh there's this green space and then I realised it was all plastic. That's disappointing. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like oh. (laughs) Now they have done studies to say that looking at images of greening right. is better than not looking <laughs> so at greening. put the poster on the wall thing yeah but we have to think about the fact that the benefits of greening yeah. are not just how they look they are what they do for the environment yeah they yeah. help to um they help to cool the space mm. they help to um provide oxygen yep. they they improve our our health and well-being they provide us places to recreate that are that are cooler and yeah. um and 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 connect us back to nature yeah I've noticed, obviously, it's true um, that uh, <laughs> a lot, a lot of new housing estates seem to be following that path you're talking about before, where the house is everything, the backyard is you know minuscule, um, 
And that seems to be the pattern everywhere. And I don't know whether that's come from it. Obviously, the market is at least tolerating it. But is there, does that come with the demand for other green spaces nearby? Is it, Who's asking for this beyond it being patently obvious? I would probably say developers. Um, mm. So... We, I think we call it the loss of the back, the Aussie backyard. Yeah. People um, are sold the dream of the four-bedroom, two-bathroom, three-living area, um, outdoor outdoor living space, which has three walls yeah. and you know there's yes. one, one wall that isn't is exposed to the garden, which is about five square meters. Yeah, and you can't fit a meaning a meaningful vegetation in that space. Um, you can't put a good good sized tree in what that means for those suburbs is um an increase in its uh, heat overall mm. when you take into account the fact that there, there are multiple hard surfaces compared to an older suburb th mm. that would have a larger backyard um, and front yard space um, and what it also means is the op the public space has to punch above its weight yeah. in terms of providing both um open spaces so parks for people to 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 use because they they can't kick a footy in their yeah, backyard. and it's going to cater for lots of different things absolutely because it's the only option um and more people will will be aiming to go to those spaces you need to have some some space for trees in the uh, road space um so that you can have that at least at least shading effect on the road areas mm -hmm. um but yeah yeah it's it's interesting now gail um so you're the co-founder of this new network the mm. Australasian Green Infrastructure Network. What is the goal of the network? So uh, one of the, uh, as you can tell, I'm passionate about planning um, mm. and the environment. And for me, when I was working in the, in the planning space, I noticed there was this real disconnect between people wanting to, to um, install in, in the city of Melbourne, green roofs, walls or facades, but we're having trouble getting that through the planning mm. phase. And for me, I, I felt um, disappointed that the planning system was not um, running up and just jumping at this chance yeah. to improve um, green space yeah. in our cities, and especially in the private realm. And, and for me, that started my kind of passion around, well, well how can we connect planning and green infrastructure together and, and facilitate this happening in our cities? Because it's so needed. Yep. Um, and as part of that, I created with others... Um, and for me, you know, working on this evidence-based and science mm -hmm. is, is, is the way that I, I think we need to be going in these. So, so getting the universities together and academics and researchers to help understand what, what is the best way to do this? Mm -hmm. How do we get high-quality green infrastructure? How do we... Um, what what can we get the most bang for our buck doing? Yep. You know, yep. what's the perfect amount of substrate, which is like a, a replacement soil? What are the best types of plants for cooling? What can um, retain the most water so we can reduce stormwater flowing into our rivers? Yeah. Um, and, and I suppose I suppose a big part of that too. I know, like I used to work at a university in Melbourne, and um, and I used to work in the tallest building, and I used to look out of the window and think, my God, this place mm. is ugly, you know, because the, the building roofs are all unused and, and really ugly, and, and I think there's a difference between some of the trees and so forth planted there to make the place look pretty and trying to achieve the goals you're talking about with, yep. you know, correct choice and so forth, not just for, for look and aesthetics, but for all the things you're talking about that are needed. Yeah, so we call those ecosystem services, which is, mm. you know, the services that um, nature can provide yep. people, um, especially in cities that's even more important where we have less less mm. nature typically. Um, 
with Melbourne in particular, we have 880 hectares of rooftop space right. um, mm. with the potential for other uses. Stuff. Yeah. Imagine that. That's that's huge area. Yeah, yeah. I think um, too the you know the one thing I always note, and this is something. I've planted a lot of ferns in my background, in my backyard. It's a very small backyard, but I've tried to... Mm. This is a challenge. <laughs> I almost lost an umbrella the other day when there was a big windstorm during the week, but no, it's in shade because otherwise, you know, they'll just burn... You know, these are, these are you know, carefully procured tree ferns from Tasmania. You know, apparently it's procured sustainably. It was very careful to pay three times as much for this. Mm-hmm. And, but, you know, they, they are... They, the Australian sun will just destroy them without a canopy. Yeah. And... But the one thing I notice when, you know, if I drive up to the Dandenongs or I drive up to Woodend or wherever, and you get out of the car, and I notice two things. One is it's always cooler. Yep. It's just cooler by a couple of degrees sometimes. Not a lot, but it's cooler. And two, you feel different. There's something about it. You just, you know, you, your body relaxes. And then, you know, we, we just forget what that's like completely. Yep. And I think... You know, I'm not sure if just not enough people from the cities are actually doing that to remember what it's like. Or, you know, it's like, you know, the light pollution, you know. Most people in the city don't remember what the stars look like. The only mm. thing they see is the moon. Mm. Um, yeah, and, we, and we've lost something there, haven't we? It's, um, it's, it's hard to value things that you don't actually experience. Yeah. And if you live in a city mm. um, and you don't get to experience, as you say, the, the stars or, or nature, you can't feel what it does for mm, you yeah. so yeah absolutely that's why bringing nature into the city is really important yeah so what role will the network play in terms of changing policy and so forth because obviously there's some there's some things in the way which i mean when you hear even just hearing that i think why why are there things in the way especially private organizations putting this in place so for the AGIN, the Australasian Green Infrastructure Network, what we're trying to do is to bring researchers, um, the industry who create these spaces mm-hmm. and government together to try and smooth that path right. to facilitate good greening, the right greening in the right spaces um, and also w- advocate for things like better policy in this space so that we can make sure that the, the private realm is doing its job and and contributing Mm. to um, to improving green spaces and getting green spaces into our city and not just getting them, maintaining them. This is something that's really important with greening, that yep. we have good greening um, that's mm. created in the first place and then we maintain it so that we can maintain the benefits that we receive from it. Yeah. It's interesting when I walk into some new university buildings, what I want to see is Singapore Airport. I, yeah. I want to see our you know, knowledge centres promoting what this could be. You know, as opposed to what they're currently doing, which is not that. And I think there's such an opportunity there. You know, maybe you know you might get a lucky one that will partner with you, where where they, you know, there's some like La Trobe University, for example, has some beautiful green spaces because it's more sparsely populated, I think, than than some of the other city-based universities. Well, I mean, I've been to the Burnley campus at the University mm. of Melbourne mm. a few times, and that that gar- the gardens that they yeah. have next to it are fabulous. They yeah, have a yeah. couple of green roofs there as well. But also RMIT in the city has yep. some fabulous hidden pockets of green yeah. if you walk through that space, um, yeah. whether they're deliberately within the buildings themselves, um, but they certainly have them around. There's a there's a, a fig that, that rests on the on the right. wall near the yep. Melbourne jail that, that yeah, is yeah. tangled around the, yeah, it's the wall. It's beautiful. Yeah. So, um, Gail, just before you go, what would you like people to do to help with this process? 
Uh, so anyone who is interested in, in helping to um, promote the network, what we're planning to do is, um, it's, it's Australasian, so it's um, both Australia and um, Aotearoa New Zealand. Mm -hmm. And we would like to ensure that um, anyone who is working in this area can join us and we can work together to um, promote and advocate for high quality green infrastructure in our cities. Fantastic. Website? Uh, it's www.agin.org.au. So that's A-G-I-N.org.au. Easy. Gail, thank you very much for coming on today. Good luck with this. I think it's something that uh, anyone listening will hear this and think, yes, we need more of it. And I would love all of Melbourne to look like Singapore Airport. I'd never leave. <laughs> so yeah. would I. <laughs> it's probably, we're probably never going to get our wish there, Gail, but I think uh, it's it's something to, to inspire people. And maybe a few more inspirational creations like that around the city would would help to yeah. um, help to do that. Thanks for coming on Einstein to Go Go. Thank you. Folks, we're going to take a short break, and uh, when we come back, we're going to finish off with some news with Chris KP and Dr. Lauren. Triple R on FM, digital, online, and via the app. Uh, welcome back, folks. Uh, we have got some news that we need to throw your way, some science news before the end of the program. Dr. Lauren, you still there? I'm still here. I've been <laughs> loving the show. Lots of great stories. Tell us, give us some news for the week. I mean, you've had, what, four weeks to prepare this so <laughs> yeah exactly, exactly no pressure no, no pressure. pressure well i'm gonna i'm gonna talk you know new year's resolutions i'm gonna talk about diets but i'm not talking about diets for humans but actually about diets for microbes mm. so just a little bit of definition so a microbe is basically any organism which is too small to see unless you use a microscope okay. so we're talking about bacteria fungi viruses those sorts of things and interestingly, microbes still need very similar components to survive that we do. So they need carbohydrates, fats, proteins, and vitamins to live, you know, similar to what humans do. And, you know, historically, it was thought that microbes need very diverse kind of diets. And so they obviously, you know, for example, tend to eat things in our compost and they, they eat meats and, and vegetables. But a new study that's just been released at the end of December has actually found that some microbes can exist by eating viruses alone. Oh, yeah. So they don't need to eat anything else but viruses, which is very oh. cool. So it's a particular, particular microbe called Halteria. And they're tiny, pond-dwelling, little microorganisms. And this particular study showed that you can actually feed them viruses alone. And there's a particular virus in the ponds called chloroviruses, which are responsible for breaking down algae. And so these microbes can actually live on only the viruses. But they obviously need a lot of them, right? There's not very much, not very much goodness in a virus. And so one microbe can eat up to... Quad, a quadrillion, so it's a huge number <laughs> of viruses per day. Wow. It's kind of like a whale and makes, krill. It makes you realise how yeah, many viruses that, are out there. Yeah, a lot of viruses. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's no shortage. Yeah. That's it, that's it. And one of the other really cool things I liked about this story is they talk obviously in the paper about the fact this was done in a lab environment, so they're not sure if it relates to the real world, but they're in Nebraska. So the paper basically ends by saying, you know, once our lakes defrost after winter, <laughs> we'll go out and have a look. <laughs> I love Just that. Yeah, that's that's very cool. It's it's interesting though, isn't it? Every time we we think we know everything about some of these things, something else comes out. I mean, you know, there's been all sorts of bacteria and so forth of, you know, lived in the most hostile environments, and you know, we start talking about where they could live, which is especially interesting mm -hmm. when we talk about other planets and moons in the yeah. solar system. And you think, okay, yeah. this this thing can live in this environment that would kill me in minutes, 
and yeah. yet you know it thrives on on some of those materials or it can you know survive in you know lake vostok under a couple of <laughs> kilometers of ice um you know in, in antarctica and that you know again would kill me in minutes but well that's probably being ambitious say, pretty, pretty cocky aren't you <laughs> <laughs> probably in seconds uh, but you know these yeah. things thrive in these environments it's just um it, blow, it blows me away blows me away and and the other thing that i find amazing is it's not all of the microbes so you know they mm. they did the same experiment with all sorts of different types and quite most of them can't survive on viruses alone so yeah. it's just very specific types and um, you know, yeah, it just opens up the idea that we're just learning so much about our environment yeah. every day. Yeah, I had some bacterial infection over uh, the summer and took some antibiotics and killed all the microbes in my gut <laughs> over a period of a week. And, you know, it's funny. I remember when I was younger, you take antibiotics, you think, this is making me better. Yeah, totally. And I was taking them thinking, this is making one very small thing better Yes. and the rest uh, of me worse. Yeah. And I wish I yeah. didn't have to do this, mm. but I'm – not handling this sore throat. <laughs> I'm going back on radio in four weeks. So, anyway, that's that's what happens. Chris KP, what have you got? Uh, well, I haven't got hay fever, um, but people oh. do. Although it is, I believe, a very low uh, pollen count. Yeah, currently. do you know we've got the pollen count guys coming in the few weeks really? too? The people oh, like, behind like, well, the won't. pollen count will be coming on the Triple R. I think uh, we did have them on about 10, 15 years ago. They're great. So after the grass growers and the paint dryers, the pollen counters. Um, that's going to be. Uh, <laughs> I'm actually very. I'm not sure you mean <laughs> Yes, pol- the pollen counters. The pollen counters is a. Yeah. Um, I think that's a, that's a great job title. Um, the reason I raised that is because, uh, so you know, if you if you have ever suffered any kind of, I would say, um, allergic reaction in your head and your face, um, or, or hay fever specifically, you know the feeling. It's the itchy eyes, the sore throat, the mm. runny nose. Yeah. So some research did a very interesting thing. They actually. Uh, took samples from uh, 55 people with hay fever and about 100-odd people without hay fever and mm-hmm. compared what they found. Mm-hmm. First thing they found was that there was a significantly reduced diversity of microbes in the noses of people with hay fever. Right. They had fewer numbers of species of things in their nose. Now, people need to recognise the fact that the inside and outside of your entire body is just alive. It is a thriving metropolis. So, yeah, there were reduced diversity, but also there was an increased level of one particular thing, a particular streptococcus. Yeah, there was lots of it in the nose. Now, it turns out that this particular bacterium loves a runny nose. Uh, it will. It actually has proteins that will trigger an inflammation, which could lead to a runny nose. So at this point, to me at least, it's unclear how much of this is causation and, and how much is correlation. correlation. I mean, how much yep. of this is you got a runny nose, therefore there's lots of this. How much of this this, this thing's actually triggering a runny nose? Um, but the bottom line is, it's not going to make your hay fever symptoms better. It's at the very least going to make them you worse. Know, a snot lows yeah. worse. Yep. So it. But the the really intriguing thing for me is the is the lack of diversity. I'm like, so which came first? You know, yeah. the, the snot or the or the pollen? <laughs> or the pollen. <laughs> that old phrase. Um, so yeah. Anyway, so it's um it, it's not a, it's one more example of your microbiota is influencing the experience of your life one yep. way or the other. Yep. I think too one of the things we're going to find when we uh, get the pollen team in mm. is it's not just pollen. Oh no. There's no, no. a lot of stuff. Yeah. Um, the, you know, and then those are designed to collect this stuff and stop it going yeah. into our lungs, but they can only do so much, of course. And then you get it in the eyes and yeah. you know, and everywhere else. And and I think uh, people who really suffer from hay fever must be like, well, I suspect they're quite happy with La Nina. Um, and we've had three years of it, which is kind of a bit of a relief. I mean, you look at the the hay fever map each day that's put out by the pollen count guys, and there's an app if people yes, want it. Yes, there is. 
And, you know, lately it's been green or yellow most but days. My, my fear is, of course, that whilst I think you're totally right, you know, they, they might like La Nina when it's La Nina. Oh, yeah. But when it comes back, <laughs> oh, it's, yeah. oh, it's going to be nasty. There's, there's, a lot, yeah. there's a lot of stuff growing yeah. down there. So I think yeah. that, that, will be, that will be one of those turning points where people, you know, really see a difference. And mm. look, I used, to get, I used to get it very bad. Mm. Um, and I did one of those things where – and this is anecdotal, so I don't want people to hear this and think it's <laughs> science coming out of my mouth. But, <laughs> but you know, I, I bought local, um, locally produced uh, unprocessed honey. Oh, yes. Yeah, and yeah. I would have a spoonful of that honey with all sorts of contaminants every day for about six months. And it, it just reduced yeah. my symptoms from then on um, substantially. And I remember talking to some of the researchers in, in mm. the field um, at the children's and they said, well, look, you know, it's hard to do a clinical trial on that because, you know, like there's so many different – Local contaminants. I think. I think the key it was what you touched on before that it's local honey because yeah. you're then exposed to local local stuff. stuff. Yeah. If you yep. go into another environment, and I've I've had that experience where you get hay fever somewhere, and then mm. you know, a few weeks later, it's kind of sorted itself out. Yeah. Or yeah. a few months later. Yep. But yes, yeah. yes. but uh, very unpleasant, and I think uh, a lot of people get it in a very unpleasant way, a lot worse than me. So yeah, no, it's not great. We have to do something about the hay. <laughs> <laughs> I think that we can. Uh, Dr. Lauren, good to see you again coming uh, live from your closet. Yeah, anytime. And definitely next time I'll be there in the studio. We will hold Fingers you to that, madam. Look forward to seeing you in person. Uh, Chris, Chris KP, I mean, you, you travel quite a distance too. I noticed today you're wearing a shirt that has a patent on it for a trumpet. Yeah, I, I, I often wear patents on my t shirts. Trumpet? No, this is a very rare one. <laughs> uh, people will be able to spot you now that I've mentioned yeah. that walking down the street. Yeah. Sorry about that. I probably shouldn't have said that. Uh, just give him a hug. He likes hugs. Uh, <laughs> just don't touch his shirt. I'll it's... take it off. It's okay. <laughs> Liv's been doing our Twitter feed. Good to have you back, Liv, as well. We will see you again next week. Remember, until then, science is everywhere. I'm Dr. Shane. Have a wonderful weekend. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Agogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Agogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.